Hi, I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 30 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. On today's show, we feature a conversation with Lion Tree CEO Aryeh Borkoff, an economist and New York Times best-selling author, Dr. Dambisa Moyo. Her newest book, Edge of Chaos, Why Democracy is Failing to Deliver Economic Growth and How to Fix It, is available now on Amazon and booksellers everywhere. Listen in for this punchy interview where Dambisa gives us her view on the macroeconomic environment and her 10 proposals for reform, essentially reimagining democracy as we know it. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. It is my great pleasure to be sitting here today with Dambisa Moyo, whose new book, Edge of Chaos, Why Democracy is Failing to Deliver Economic Growth and How to Fix It. It came out only a few days ago. That's right. Dambisa is not only a three-time New York Times bestselling author, she is a Harvard and Oxford-trained Zambian-born international economist who has worked for the World Bank and for Goldman Sachs. She burst onto the scene in 2009 as a policy entrepreneur with her indictment of the system of global aid in a book titled Dead Aid, Why Aid is Not Working and How There is a Better Way for Africa. In her current book that we're going to discuss today, Dambisa discusses the four headwinds of demographics, inequality, commodity scarcity, and technological innovation that are driving social and economic unrest and argues for a basic retooling of democratic capitalism to address current issues and deliver better outcomes in the future. Dambisa, thank you for being here with us. Pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. It's a great time to talk about this topic because, you know, typically in our podcast for KindredCast, we focus on technological innovation, the chapter that media is going through and undertaking, and we try to have a better understanding of, you know, what we're going as a country and in the world order. And it is an interesting moment because I keep hearing from people in our world in finance that there's a decoupling going on of the markets, the economy, and policy. And everyone's trying to make sense of that right now. And your book really does try to tackle these chasms that are created between these factions. So maybe you can give us a bit of a quick synopsis of the book and what you were trying to accomplish. Sure. Thank you very much. Really, the book is written by myself as a frustrated economist. My PhD is in economics. I love economics. But virtually every problem that we're dealing with in the economic space is long-term, intergenerational, and quite structural. So things like income inequality, but the debt burden as well, how we're going to pay back all this debt, the risk of deficits, productivity declines, income inequality, touched on and also shifting demographics and really the consequence of technology and what that might mean for a jobless underclass. Unfortunately, the political environment, particularly the liberal democratic approach, has embedded in it a short-termism. Basically, politicians very rationally court and cater voters for today. They don't really care about what's going to happen tomorrow. And this creates a mismatch or a schism between the long-term economic problems that we're dealing with and the short-termism embedded in the political sphere. So what this book does is offer 10 ways really to bridge that gap because we do need democratic politicians to take the lead. And it's born out of frustration, as I say, but it's also really urgent given these global headwinds that threaten to upend the global economy. And frankly, we spend so much time talking about the current political environment with very little and certainly not adequate focus on these long-term problems. It's a similar dynamic that we talk about for the public markets, because 
companies that are going through a transition, like a lot of the media companies, a lot of technology companies, a lot of auto industry companies, any industry really, retail, you have a conflict between how a CEO manages for the shareholder base over the short term and how you have to make investments and make long-term Absolutely. Uh, bets really that will pay off over a very long period of time outside of the short-term investment horizon. And you're taking that to a macro level and saying the economic growth that we all are desiring for the world and for this country needs to be done in part and parcel with the long-term policymaking of the administration. Absolutely. And it's absolutely essential to underscore the fact that this myopia issue is not just a problem of politics and politicians. It's also deeply embedded now in the business arena. You will be aware, I'm sure, that over the last year, dividend to retained earnings is over 100%. So companies are giving back the cash because they worry about where they can invest, the, where they can invest the money. The tenures of CEOs and CFOs is much shorter than it was about two decades ago. So now we see CEOs only serving about four years. When In the past, it used to be 10 years, and at least they could see one business cycle. And of course, there are other data points that are quite worrying. The average holding period, the stock holding period in portfolios for many hedge fund managers has shrunk considerably. In the 1970s, it used to be around seven years. Some estimates now suggest that it's as short as 11 weeks, and a lot of high-frequency trading is making that much more acute. But you are right that my book is really tackling the political environment. And there's a whole chapter talking about the business concerns and what that might mean for investment. And of course, one other thing I should point out is that today, in fact, over the last decade, we've seen the number of companies that are trading publicly has halved. It was about 7,000 about 10, 15 years ago. Now it's down to about 3,000. Is that a good thing? At least one of the concerns that arises from that is that businesses are worried about short-termism and they're concerned about this quarterly reporting and what that might mean for long-term investment. So it does mean that it should be good in terms of long-term thinking. But I do worry that there might not be enough private capital to sustain enough certain bigger companies to go private. Or even accountability, right? You are hitting on the right point. For a company to transition and invest for long-term properly, oftentimes need to be private versus public. That's exactly right. So how do you marry that in a political perspective? Because if you're talking about CEO tenure being shorter than it should be for long-term investments, the policymaking and the presidential administrations and the leaders that we have are also going through very short-term periods. They certainly are. Yes, and one of the short-term answers is people say, well, you should just focus on investors that are interested in the long haul. So sovereign wealth funds, pensions and insurance companies. And so a lot of businesses are looking at that, but it, it is a hard transition you're right. But in terms of public policy, the concern, as I mentioned, is that we do need them to focus on the long term. And so what my book does is offer 10 proposals to get them to focus on these long term issues. Some of the issues that I focus on is actually looking at extending the political terms. So instead of having elections every two years, as they do in the United States, you could look at having a one term presidency, which is six years, which is very similar to what happens in Mexico. Places like Brazil have one term for nine years. And I think think that that might imbue a sense of long-termism without you having to worry about fighting the next election. And term limits, you would get one shot, not a chance to get reelected, but you have a longer period of time to implement your policies. Because if you're elected president of the United States, for example, after two years, you're effectively planning your re-election. Absolutely. Right? Again, it's very rational, but it is incredibly disruptive. And also from a public policy perspective, and setting out policies that business can decide where to allocate capital to, it does mean that we are constantly changing the backdrop of the policy landscape. Are we going to have Obamacare? Are we not? I mean, these things are changing from period to period in a way that's unsustainable. And just to the point of shorter tenure, 
years, um, the 10 years now, in the 1950s and 60s for democratically elected heads of state was around seven years. It's now down to three years. And so this also feeds into this skepticism, a lot of general disaffection that we see around the world and people not trusting that democratic leaders can do their job. Well, let's talk about term limits in the context of China, because obviously Xi Jinping now just has garnered a lot more control. Is that something that you embrace now because of the thesis of having a longer-term perspective? With a wait and see. I'm not an ideologue, so I generally like to see results. And this is one of the reasons I like the Singaporean model where ministers get paid 30 to 40 percent bonuses every year based on how certain economic metrics improve. So whether GDP goes up, inflation is down, we've seen the increase in living standards, those kind of metrics, I'm very willing to pay politicians more if they deliver that. And by the way, there is a clause back. So if they find out in five years that actually they were just inflating the economy, there was no real GDP, they can take back money out of their pensions. And I like that kind of dynamism in the thinking. And I think with regard to China, having been raised in a poor continent, the asset allocation decisions of public policymakers in those countries is very different. It's very basic. Build a school, build a road, build a hospital. And so in that respect, I am sympathetic to this view that without a middle class in place, you may not be able to to hold democracy in place anyway. And there's a lot of research. One of my favorite pieces of research is from a professor called Przeworski at NYU. And he argues that below $6,000 per capita, you can't have democracy anyway, because it's constantly under flux and under challenge. And so actually, there is this argument that you may want some kind of a benevolent dictator who can actually get your country to a place where the per capita incomes are higher, and you have a middle class that's able to hold the government accountable. So in a nutshell, one has to be a bit more open-minded about what comes first. Is it democracy or is it economic growth? And we have tried in the Washington consensus the idea that democracy comes first. And I think the skepticism that we see around the world suggests that maybe we need to revisit that question. And perhaps it's actually economic growth that's a prerequisite for democracy. Yeah, you say in your book that we are on the verge of a global economic downward spiral which is, I guess, apropos to the edge of chaos. Yes. <laughs> um, so what's the urgency? I mean, the Singaporean model that you outlined seems wonderful from a capitalistic perspective that there's appropriate incentives and accountability for decision-making on a policy front and there are clawbacks, et cetera. How quickly could we even implement that if we wanted to in this country, or is it more to talk about versus implement? Well, I'm an eternal optimist. 200 years ago, women weren't allowed to vote, blacks weren't allowed to vote, and here we are. I can imagine the discourse at that time was very reluctant to expand the electorate. And so I'm eternally optimistic. I really believe in the United States mentality and the culture of reinventing, reshaping the direction when things don't seem to be working. And to me, it's clear on many metrics that the democratic process is not working. And we talked about voter participation rates, but it's clear that money has seeped into the political process through lobbying. The New York Times reports that 158 families were responsible for 50% of the political contributions for the presidency in 2016. Those type of statistics don't bode well for a liberal democratic system. I am eternally optimistic how they could be implemented. I talk a little bit about in my book. Um, I like I, that about the book. You really outline solutions. Yes, not it's just, critically not, important. Not to showcase the problem. So you yeah. actually say that there is a blueprint for a new democracy. Yes. And that's where you lay out your 10 proposals. That's right. Like mandatory voting, for yeah, example. We should consider that. 27 countries have mandatory voting. I mean, it clearly impacts the participation rate immediately. So countries like Australia, Belgium, many countries in South America have high participation rates because they have mandatory voting. It's not just that you get potentially a monetary fine, but you might be limited in having your child access public education, or you yourself might not get a job in the public service. 
this if you do not go and vote. And it's interesting because when I speak to friends from Australia, they say the very nature of the engagement, the political process and the voting, voting day is like a, a carnival. People are happy to be there. It's a civic responsibility that people enjoy. Whereas he, he's Australian and American, he says he was shocked the first day he went to vote in the United States, how negative and sort of people standing in line and dour it was. And, and I think we need to kind of imbue that enthusiasm so we can get better voter participation rates. But one of the more provocative statements around that voting proposal you have is that the more qualified voters should count more for their voices. Talk about that for a little bit. So this is the idea of weighted voting. And it's essentially the idea that you allocate more or less of a vote to people who are more engaged, but also you can look at age as an option. And I think it's important to stress that this is not about how many houses you have. It's not about education per se, because we don't want a situation where people are discriminated on or lacking access to vote because they did not get a, a certain degree from a certain place. That's not what this is about. This is crucially about ensuring that we increase the voter participation rate, but also we increase voter knowledge. So it's about tests that I've had to take as an immigrant to come to the United States. Basic tests. What is the structure of the executive, the legislator, and the judiciary? How does democracy function? What is the role of the voter? What are the key points that are being debated when we think about healthcare or about education? There is a, a much more virulent version of this weighted voting, which I talk about as well in the book, where you could say that people who are doctors and nurses who work in the medical profession perhaps have more knowledge and understanding of the healthcare system, and maybe their vote should count more when it comes to issues of healthcare and teachers have more understanding of whether we should spend the marginal dollar on blackboards or on books or on pencils. And so maybe they should have a bigger responsibility in terms of uh, voting on education matters. I think that might work more in referenda than a general election. But again, it's being explored right now and experimented in Canada and in Switzerland. And so I don't see why we wouldn't want to think about that in the United States. And I might point out as well, we do have weighted voting in the Democratic Party. Superdelegates have a big weight in their vote than an average delegate. So already there is that sort of split in terms of who gets to vote and how. It's a surprising thing that we're using logic and reason to present <laughs> yes, proposals for change. Yeah. I know. But I do want to talk about life cycle a little bit because you are a big fan of the book The Fourth Turning by Neil Howe and William Strauss. And talk about how the theory of that in the history of people move in 80 to 100 year cycles. And if that's true and obviously makes sense, what cycle are we in now? Where are we going for the next 100 years? Their book is quite bearish. I mean, they are deeply concerned about where we are. I think they think we're in the latter phase of the cycle. But to me, my reading of that was really an alarm saying, listen here, we need to shift gears. And there are many ways that are pretty obvious. We've got very poor infrastructure investments. You, you know, just have to go around the United States. The American Civil Engineers Report, which comes out regularly, is graded U.S. infrastructure as a D plus. Education standards are low. The OE OECD claims that this generation of Americans, for the first time in over 200-year history of the country, will be less educated than the preceding generation. I mean, there's a lot of corrosive rot going on in this country. The rankings in mathematics and science and reading have slid down for the United States and many other developed countries as well. So this is, to me, feeding into this story of the fourth turning, productivity decline challenge and concerns around that, I should say, the puzzle. Many people in other countries are saying, Hmm. 
Are people working less? Is the output in the United States declining because citizens actually know that the political process means that politicians will give them free stuff if they want to win elections and therefore they don't have to work that hard? That's what the data is telling us. I recognize those concerns, which is why I've written this book, but I also am very optimistic in the sense that of all countries that I've visited, I've been to over 80 countries around the world, this is a country that loves to reset and shift direction and innovate. And it is the home of innovation. And so as a marathon runner myself, I know that, you know, mile 16 and mile 17, you think, oh my God, I've got 10 more miles. How am I going to do it? You change your plan, you change your strategy. And I think books like The Fourth Turning are trying to say, listen here, yeah, we've got a lot of corrosive rot going on in many aspects of this society. We need to do something very urgently in order to reset and do better. And we're a country that has been embracing disruption for, in, a, in a lot of ways, including the industries that we focus on, technology, media, and across all industries, obviously, now going through massive changes. Do you think that a president like Trump is a disruptive president or one that obviously is more uh, difficult to compartmentalize, because what you're describing is a disruptive policy, which is the president that you would like to see in shape or form come through next election that kind of plays into this thesis? I think it's a great question. And it's important for me to maybe stress that none of my proposals suggest that the election of President Trump nor the Brexit referendum would have been different. I mean, this is really about legitimacy. What it worries me about democracy is not just myopia, but the fact that we had two elections, certainly Brexit and President Trump, but also across Europe with the rise of populism, where we're becoming more skeptical about the outcomes of those elections and spending an inordinate amount of time as citizens and individuals, but also our parliamentarians and representatives fighting and squabbling and trying to undermine the whole political process. I don't think that's efficient. But to you specifically your question, the question is what happens next. Will we see a reversion to the mean and maybe what were the more traditional types of presidencies uh, after President Trump? I don't know. I mean, there's been a lot of debate. And one of the more interesting articles that came out by David Brooks a few weeks ago in the New York Times, he claims that this is the beginning of the end in some respects, and we will be more like an Italy who had a President Trump-like character, media baron, very sort of social media savvy, with a sort of colorful private life, who was president for a long time, head of state in Italy for many, many years. And even though he's now out of office, he's still challenging. And the most critical message from David Brooks is that the middle center part of the politics has collapsed. And what you've ended up with was two extremes, the left and the right, and a lot more volatility. And we've seen that the failed elections just a few weeks ago, they really haven't been able to get back on solid footing. I worry that that could be a situation here, because we do need to get the uh, long term focus back on the agenda. But you know, in many respects, I think that perhaps having President Trump is a wake-up call that something is wrong. I mean, a lot of the issues that we've talked about already in terms of economic headwinds are things that we've kind of known have been bubbling under the surface, yeah. but we needed the election of a rank outsider to get in and sort of to shake things up and for better or for worse. Maybe that'll be our next conversation about who the candidates are that would fit the bill. I'd love that. To really disrupt and get us to a more productive future on growth and policy. Yeah. So last question I have before I get to some fun facts. You've been to 80 countries, you said, and we mentioned the Singaporean model. But talk about if you could subscribe to one country's philosophy that's getting it right, what would it be and who would it be? And maybe marry that with where we're going vis-a-vis -vis China, because I think there's a lot of fear 
and imbalance with respect to our relationship on trade with China and yes. obviously in the U.S. And For how sure. much would we be concerned about that? As I mentioned earlier, I'm very much anti-ideology. I don't think we should take philosophy or political science or economics as oracle truths. These are human-created strictures and frameworks. And so they are subject to mistakes. They are not dynamic. There are other places around the world, not just Singapore, across Scandinavia, they seem to have got a reasonably good balance. The truth of the matter is these are all very small countries, you know, four or five million people in, in many of the average countries in Scandinavia. And Singapore is a nation city, really. But what I will say that I think is really important is when I've spent time in China, they claim that they're ideological about economic growth. And therefore, if we could convince them that democracy and market capitalism could deliver sustained economic growth in an equitable fashion, they would adopt it tomorrow. The reason they have not adopted is they don't believe that that is the path. They worry about the financial crisis having come from the West. Political and populism right now and political instability is coming from the West. And so they say, well, this is not the model that's going to deliver. But the other point that I think is really central to the debate and to your question, and it, it goes back into the point of ideology, is that in the West, we tend to view the individual as sacrosanct and the most important thing. And the, the individual can do whatever he or she wants as long as it doesn't impinge on somebody else's life. So I can eat and drink and be merry and be reckless, but no one is allowed to tell me that I can't do that as mm -hmm. long as I'm not impacting someone else's life. So Western life. ideology, yeah. Absolutely, Western ideology. The problem with that model is that there are social costs of individual behavior. So if I decide I want to have 50 children, I don't think it's possible, but if that were something that was were possible, there is a social cost of that. And that is drawing on natural resources or just the ability to manage the welfare of those children. It could become a social cost. Obesity, run into a situation where people have to go and get diabetes medicine or they have to be treated by a state hospital. Again, individual choice becoming a social cost. Well, that model is completely antithetical to the Chinese model, where for them, the most important thing is society. In a way, they recognize that human beings are not to be trusted. They're kind of wayward. And not only do they do bad things for society, they do bad things for themselves. You know, in the face of being told, don't drink too much because alcohol is bad for you, we still consume vast amounts of alcohol and we smoke too much and drink too much and do all these things that was completely against the sense and logic, as you said. So for them, they think the state is the most important thing. And I know it's a little bit long-winded, but I think this is really the war on thinking. How willing are we in uh, Western societies to give up some of those individual benefits in the interest of society? One of the things that they're doing in China, and I'll close off with this, is uh, sesame credits, which I think is a fascinating innovation. But they've taken the view that they believe so much in the value of society that they now give citizens rewards if you do things that are beneficial for society. So if you take your kids class to play soccer on the weekend. Well, that's a good thing for society. Kids outside, they're getting some exercise, they're learning teamwork. Well, when you want to go and watch Black Panther, we'll give you VIP seats. Or if, God forbid, you have a relative who's unwell, we will let you jump the line and you'll get front access to the next doctor. So back to the incentives for the right kind of behavior for exactly. the community. Exactly. You know, I was talking to Michael Sandel, who's a Harvard professor who I absolutely adore, and he wrote a book called What Money Can't Buy. And he balked at this idea. And it lies in the face of America and Western values. It's completely antithetical to the idea of I'm an individual and I can do whatever I like. But it's an interesting proposition. Do we want a model 
more like that. Now, I will just say that these are two extreme models. Maybe the answer is somewhere in the middle. And I think part of getting to that middle is seeding this ideological agenda and saying we're here only for that. Yeah, yet another benefit of learning from the immigration society. I'm a first-generation American myself. I know you've immigrated to this country. So understanding these perspectives of different societies where they've worked is obviously a very good dynamic and another benefit for the immigrants. So you have these bold ideas and bold books that you've written about, which I really love. Thank um, you. It must have come from somewhere. I give you primary credit, but have you had a mentor in your life that you point to? I think it's my parents, really. I mean, I view them as really the pioneers of my life because they actually grew up in rural Africa in the colonial period. They ended up going to school. Nobody's you know, told them this is what school is like. I mean, their parents had never been to school. So they are constantly innovators. And the one thing I grew up learning, being in their home and having dinner on the table, is just not to be ideological. Anything can happen. Life it ebbs and flows. And you just cannot be so rigidly wed to values. I mean, of course, you want to have values, but you don't want to be wed to ideology to such a point that it actually starts to hurt us. Yeah. Are you watching any television shows right now? I am a 100% law and order devotee. So the old law and order, and I have to say it's as pathetic as it sounds, they still run marathon law and order shows. I've <laughs> seen them multiple times. I can even tell you what's going to happen. I can do the preamble. But still, the reason I find it so interesting is that it's really about social commentary. And I still find nuggets of things. I think, oh my God, I can't believe that Dick Wolf actually recognized that so early. So I'm pathetic on that. But I dibble and dabble with others stuff as well. Well, Dambisa, I really appreciate your coming here. I wish we could vote for you oh my God, to implement all these not. policies. <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> we need you as our next presidential leader. That. No, definitely not. It'd be incredible. Thank you. I really enjoy the book. Thank you so much. I hope we get to see this implemented and disrupted in the right way. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks. Take care. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can always follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.